Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk. Uh, we are continuing the sermon series on um, in the book of Habakkuk, and it's called Wrestling with God. Um, so we will be reading Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning. If you don't know where Habakkuk is in the Bible, uh, if you know where the New Testament is, so Matthew, uh, you can go back five books from there, short books, um, and you, you should be able to find it there. So we'll read Habakkuk chapter 1, and we'll read verse 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Over the years, I've been invited to a, a good number of surprise parties here at the church. And it's always fun to be on the inside about a surprise. In the weeks before the party, whenever I see the person who is going to be surprised very soon, I say to myself, I know something you don't know. And I'm very excited for the surprise that they will enjoy in the weeks to come. Then usually the person who is going to be surprised is told some kind of a lie in order to get them inside the church. Now, it's kind of disturbing to me how good some of you are at lying. And I've been meaning to talk to you at some point about that, uh, but maybe we'll wait on that discussion Anyway, it's always great fun to see someone totally surprised when they walk into, their, walk into the church and they, they weren't aware of what was coming for them. You can tell that they had no clue that this party was coming for them. It's really hard these days to keep a surprise. So when the surprise is pulled off, it's a time of great joy and celebration. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5, we see that God has a surprise plan for his prophet Habakkuk. In the first four verses of the book, Habakkuk has complained to God about the violence and the injustice that he sees within Israel. And so he's saying to God, God, you see all of this evil, you see all of this injustice, and you do absolutely nothing about it. But in verse 5, God says to Habakkuk, Surprise! But it is not the joyful surprise of a surprise party that God announces to Habakkuk. Instead, God reveals a painful surprise that is coming for his prophet and his people. Listen again to the abrupt words that God uses in verse 5. Look, see, wonder, 
be astounded. God is saying, Habakkuk, you might want to sit down for the answer that I'm going to give to your complaint. You see, the truth is that God has seen the evil in Israel. And the truth is, God is preparing something about it. He's going to do something. And at the end of verse 5, we hear God say to Habakkuk, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God tells Habakkuk, his prophet, I have a surprising answer to your prayer, but you're not even going to believe what I tell you is going to happen. Honestly, the same thing sometimes happens to us. God answers our prayers in a very surprising way that we did not see coming at all. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning and see some of the surprising ways that God answers our prayers. First of all, we see that God sometimes uses a surprising instrument to answer our prayers. I'd like for us to begin by thinking about how Habakkuk might have thought that God would answer his prayers for his country. Habakkuk, like many of you, was a very patriotic person. He deeply loved his country of Israel. And so he saw the moral and the spiritual decline of Israel over the years, and he prayed and he asked God to do something about it. Change our nation. Do something about this evil. So what do you think Habakkuk expected God to do in response to his prayers? He probably expected God to give Israel some kind of light discipline, not total devastation. If God gave to Israel perhaps a, a time out or a slap on the wrist like a parent might give to a child, then Israel would realize the error of its ways. They would turn from their sin. They would repent and come back to God. That's probably how Habakkuk pictured all this working out. But I, I don't think that Habakkuk expected what God had prepared for the nation. It is always a huge temptation for us to tell God not only what we want for our prayer requests, it is also a huge temptation for us to tell God how to answer our prayers. God, you must answer my prayer in this way. That is a dangerous thing to tell God. It is dangerous to tell God how to answer our prayers because God, the King, as a way of surprising us. Revival would not be the instrument that God would use to answer Habakkuk's prayers. The Chaldeans, more commonly known as the Babylonians, would be the surprising instrument that God would use to answer Habakkuk's prayers. In verse 6 we read, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. Now I want you to notice here that God does not disagree with Habakkuk's assessment of the evil within Israel. He shared Habakkuk's concern for the lack of godliness and for the morality within Israel. But he did not share Habakkuk's approved of means of fixing the problem, revival. No. God had a surprising means for dealing with Israel's sin. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians. 
So what was so surprising about God choosing to use these Babylonians to answer Habakkuk's prayer for Israel? For one thing, Babylon for years had been a very, very small state. It had only been building an army since the year 626 B.C. But less than 20 years after they had started to build their own army, Babylon began to alarm both Assyria and Egypt, the two major superpowers on earth at that time. And in 605 B.C., the Babylonian army completely smashed both the armies of Assyria and Egypt at Carchemish. And it was after this particular battle that the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made his first venture into Israel. Within a very short period of time then, around 20 years' time, the Babylonians had risen up to become this major world power when they were a very, very small state. They had come from out of nowhere to, to dominate the world scene. It must have been a shocking surprise to Habakkuk that the Babylonians would rise up to defeat Israel. Imagine if someone told you today that in 20 years' time, the Canadians would start a battle with the United States and they would completely come in and conquer us as a nation. Would you be surprised by that? I mean, most of you would be shocked, right? After all, Canada has about 10% of the population of the United States. They're much, much smaller than we are. And the other thing that would be surprising to most of you is the Canadians are such a polite people. I can only imagine the Canadians not firing guns at us, but perhaps firing hockey pucks. That would be about it. And so we would be surprised if the Canadians took us over. Well, when Habakkuk heard about God's plan to use the Babylonians to defeat Israel, his response must have been, What? Are you kidding me? The Babylonians are too small to be a world power. That's not going to happen, God. And the second thing that must have been surprising to Habakkuk was that the Babylonians were morally worse than Israel. It's true, the Israelites were bad. I mean, Habakkuk knew that. That's why he was praying to God in the first place. He said, God, this country's in a mess. You've got to save us. So Habakkuk knew that Israel was bad, but Babylon was far worse. They are described in verse 6 as a bitter and hasty people. They are an irritated group of people and ill-mannered, ill-tempered. They are like a bear that is robbed of its cubs. And so they strike out irrationally in every direction, trying to hurt those who would hurt them. And they are impetuous people. They shoot first and ask questions later. So all of the people that they conquer suffer great injustices. One of those injustices is that they would seize dwellings not their own, according to verse 6. They would grab them for themselves. Why? Because they could. And you can't say anything about it. So how would you feel if you were Habakkuk and you heard that God was planning to use the evil Babylonians to defeat Israel in war? you be surprised that the Babylonians were the answer to your prayers? I would. But God was telling Habakkuk 
that Babylon was the rod of Almighty God to punish Israel. God would use Babylon to kill many of Israel's citizens. Those who survived, many of them would be exported over to Babylon. They would be removed from their own country and taken to Babylon as captives. And the city of Jerusalem and its temple would be completely demolished. Now, you might be surprised today that God could use wicked people to accomplish his good purposes, like the discipline of his chosen people, Israel. But in the Bible, God regularly uses wicked people to accomplish good. Think, for example, about the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph's jealous brothers sold him into slavery. But God took Joseph and raised him up to a position of power in Egypt, and God used Joseph to feed many, many people and to save his own family from hunger. And in the same way, God used wicked men to take our Savior, Jesus Christ, and nail him to the cross. But what was the result of Christ being nailed to the cross? Our salvation. God used wicked people to accomplish his purpose, the salvation of his people. So God has a way of doing that. God has a way of taking wicked people and using them for his glory and our good. God uses many different instruments to our prayers. And some of those instruments for answered prayer are wicked people. Secondly, God can use a surprising, intense judgment to answer our prayers. Habakkuk's prayer for Israel was found in verse 2. It was the very short one-word prayer, save. God, save this country, save your people. That was his passionate prayer. He wanted Israel saved from its wickedness and brought back to a place of righteousness. We saw last week that Habakkuk's prayer would ultimately take over 600 years to be answered in the person of Jesus. Jesus would come to bring salvation, not just for Israel, but for all of us. But in verse 5, we see that God would answer Habakkuk's prayer. He says, in your days, Habakkuk. In other words, you're going to see with your own eyes the answer to part of your prayer. Habakkuk would see Israel receive an intense judgment at the hands of the Babylonians, which would eventually bring Israel to repentance and back to God. Israel's uh, defeat would come at the hands of a people that were dreaded and fearsome, according to verse 7. This war was going to be a nightmare for Israel as they fought the Babylonians. The Babylonians were like a pack of wild animals. They were like leopards, wolves, and eagles, according to verse 8. They were a people that was known for violence, according to verse 9. So the way that they dominated people was not only by defeating them in war, but then also taking many of the people that they defeated into exile in Babylon. They would take the best and the brightest, like in the days of Daniel, and remove them and take them to Babylon to serve the Babylonian kingdom. These people were so powerful that they they mocked even the most powerful of kings, according to verse 10. They even laughed at strong fortresses. 
These fortresses would be no match for the powerful Babylonians. Eventually, the Babylonians would get inside the city and they would destroy everyone there. And so we see that these Babylonians had no god but their own power. They did not worship the one true god of all the earth. The only thing they worshipped was themselves. Look at how great we are. Look at how powerful we are. We are the gods of the world. We read in verse 11 that they were guilty men whose own might is their God. This was the people that God had chosen to discipline Israel. This was the intense judgment that was coming for Israel. It was a judgment that was prophesied a hundred years earlier in the days of the prophet Isaiah. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 6 when Isaiah delivered this prophecy to the king at the time, King Hezekiah. Let's read that prophecy together out loud. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So how much was Judah going to lose to Babylon because of this war? How much? All of it. Everything was going to be gone. What an intense judgment God was going to send on his own people. Now at this point, some of you are saying to yourself, Pastor, this is the most depressing message ever. Thank you so much for it. I come to church to be lifted up, and you have just depressed me in an amazing way. Well, let's ask the question, you know, why? Why was God going to judge his chosen people in this way? Isn't God a God of love? Isn't that who he is? And the answer is absolutely yes. I brought a picture with me today to remind you of God's amazing love. First John and verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 8 says this, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is what? God is love. And so if you came here to be reminded of that, here it is. God is a God of love. That is who he is. We can never forget that. But we can also never forget that one of the ways that God loves his people sometimes is by showing them intense discipline. That's one of the ways that God loves us. Some of you have known the heartache of seeing close family members fall away from their faith in Christ. I, too, have known that heartache in my own life. I have gotten into the wrestling ring with God, praying for the souls of loved ones, for their souls, that they would come back to Christ, that they would love him as they once did. Just like Habakkuk wrestled with God for the salvation of the nation that he loved, so I wrestle with God for the people that I love. You know why I wrestle with God in prayer for these people that I love? Because people who do not love Jesus go to hell when they die. They go to a place of eternal darkness where there is no hope that things will ever improve. That is the consistent testimony of the Bible. You know what encourages me as I get into the wrestling ring with God 
for the souls of those who have fallen away from Christ. It is passages like this in Habakkuk that encourage my heart. Why? When I read about the intense judgment that God promises to bring to his chosen people in Israel, it tells me something. It tells me that God uses any and all means necessary to bring the people that he loves back into a relationship with him. That's how much God loves us. He will stop at nothing, absolutely nothing, to bring someone who has wandered away from him back into a good relationship with him. That's how much he cares. That's how much he loves those who have wandered away from him. And so, if that means increasing the level of pain in somebody's life, that will help them to see that I need Jesus. I need to come back to him. God will do that. So be it. God does not delight to bring pain into anyone's life. But he will, if that will bring someone back to Christ. God loves his people far too much to give them up without a fight. And so the heart of God for his children, who are lost, is found in Jesus' words in Luke 19 and verse 10. Let's read those words together out loud. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Sometimes the way that Jesus seeks after us as our good shepherd is through the rod of discipline for the sheep. Sometimes it's only the rod that gets the attention of the sheep. As they feel the pain, they recognize, I've got to come back to my good shepherd. That is why God chooses sometimes to bring such intense judgment to his people. And the good result of God intensely disciplining Israel for their sins is found later in the book of Habakkuk. God devastated those Israelites who thought that they were good enough in their own good deeds to please God. After their country was destroyed, the Israelites realized that they were not nearly righteous enough in the eyes of God to please Him with their good works. And this laid the foundation for the message of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, where we read at the end of the verse, the righteous shall live by his faith. It is faith alone, in Christ alone, that will make us righteous, that will give us good standing before God. It has absolutely nothing to do with our supposed good works. None can stand righteous before God in his own deeds. Only faith in Jesus can bring to us both God's forgiveness and his righteousness. The people of Israel learned this truth after they were devastated by God's intense judgment for their sins. The final surprising way that God answered Habakkuk the prophet's prayers is that God used himself to bring judgment on Israel. And God uses himself in our lives as well to bring judgment on our lives and on our country. Notice in verse 5 who God says is responsible for bringing this intense judgment upon the people of Israel. God says in the middle of verse 5, 
For I am doing a work in your days that would not believe that you would not believe if told. So who then is responsible for the Babylonians defeating Israel? Who is responsible for all this? God is. God is responsible. This was God's plan. Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was God's beloved. Israel was the apple of his eye. But God himself sent this terrible judgment on Israel because of the nation's sin. How surprised Habakkuk and the people of Israel must have been that God was the author of this judgment. This judgment was no random historical event. God planned it. God raised up Babylon for his purposes. This was all the work of God. In fact, God was not just king over what happened in Israel in Habakkuk's day. God is also the king over every event that happens in our day. And so when you watch the news and you hear about wars and political battles and the coronavirus and natural disasters, who is the king over everything that is happening on the news today? Who is responsible for all of it? God. God is the one who is in complete control of everything that is happening in our world and in our lives. God is the king. God is the king who brought this savage war upon the Israelites in Habakkuk's day. And sometimes today, God brings brutal armies and diseases against fallen churches and societies and nations to correct their foolishness and their sin, to bring them to repentance and to bring them back to God. Now, some Christians definitely do not like this teaching about God's sovereignty, that God is in control of it all. They wonder if God the King could stop these bad things from happening, but he chooses not to, doesn't that make God bad? Absolutely not. If you are suffering in some way this morning, let me remind you that your king is completely good. That is who he is. How do I know that God is good? Because the same sovereignty that could stop the coronavirus or any other bad thing from happening in this world, but has not, is the very same sovereignty that sustains your soul in your suffering. God keeps you going. God is the one who continues to help you to get out of bed in the morning when you are going through a season of suffering. And so he sustains you through his sovereignty, just as he has allowed this bad event to happen in your life. In his goodness and by his kingly power, God will sustain you. We also see God's goodness in some verses in Lamentations. Lamentations was written by Habakkuk's contemporary, Jeremiah, after Israel and Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. I'd like for us to read out loud together from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 32 and 33. 
Though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So let me ask you, does God sometimes grieve us as his children? Does he sometimes bring grief into our lives? Yes, he does. But what this verse is telling you is that God does not grieve you from his heart. God's heart for you is good. He has an abundance of steadfast love stored up for you. His love flows out of him like a fountain. That is who he is, a God of love. And he has good plans for you. Sometimes, though, that means that God will send a temporary grief into your life so that you can be repentant and you can be restored to God after you turn from that sin. And so if you are grieved today in your life because of some sin that you have committed, repent today. Why continue to be in pain to fight against God? Repent. Turn from your sin. And God will show you his love once again. I'd like to close today by reminding you of the story in the Old Testament book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is one of the saddest, but it is also one of the most wonderful stories in the whole Bible. To show you the goodness of how God's sovereignty works. God the king had sent a famine on the nation of Israel. What another depressing story, huh? You see in the Bible, Israel sins over and over again, and what does God do over and over again? He gets their attention through some kind of pain. And so in the book of Ruth, the pain is a famine. And so the people of Israel can't eat. So there's a story here of Naomi, and she takes her family, she goes with her husband and her sons, and they all move to the country of Moab. But after a few years in the country of Moab, Naomi's husband and her two sons both die. And so uh, here was Naomi's response in Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, after she returned to Israel with her daughter-in-law Ruth. Here's what Naomi said. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So according to Naomi, who was responsible for her grief? God was. God had brought her pain and grief. God was the sovereign king over these bad and very sad events. But here's the question you must ask yourself. If God were the king over the sad and the bad events in her life, could not God the King also in the future be the King over good things that he would do for you as well? Could not God the King powerfully answer her prayers? Could not God the King provide for all of her future needs? Yes, he can, and yes, he did on behalf of Naomi and Ruth. God provided a husband for Ruth named Boaz. Ruth and Boaz had a child that brought Naomi great joy as a grandmother in her old age. And this grandchild would eventually rise to become the grandfather 
of the great King David. And David would be the ancestor of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who was the king over these bad and sad and joyful events in Naomi's life? Who was the king over all of it? God was the king. God is responsible for both the bad events and the good events that take place in our lives. And so sometimes God does send us grief. He sends us grief sometimes because of our own sin. Like He sent grief to the Israelites in Habakkuk's day. And sometimes He sends us grief because of the sins of other people, because of the broken world that we live in. Don't be surprised then if today God has sent you grief. But also don't forget that your God has a good heart. God has steadfast love for you that is abundant. God has a way of giving joyful surprises to those who are his children. Let's pray together. Jesus, how grateful we are that you are the king over all things. Some of your people today are experiencing grief over some painful event in their life. It is a a hard season for them. It is a, a bitter providence that you have brought into their lives. And so I pray for them in their bitterness and their sadness. I pray, Lord, that you would lift them up. Remind them that you are the king over not just the sad and the bad, but you are the king also over the good and the joyful. And I pray that you would give to your people hope. The joy is coming if they will repent and turn to you. Thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you are good, even when you send us surprising answers to our prayers that we do not necessarily like. In your name we pray. Amen.